Genesis is a book of beginnings, and today we see the beginning of marriage. The beginning of marriage. And I realize not everyone here is married, but please don't tune me out. You might, you might be married someday. You might, be, you might be a teenager thinking this has no application to me. Well, I would submit to you it's important that you catch a vision, a biblical vision for marriage now. So please, please, pay attention. Or you know people who are married here, people who will want and need your help, and you can minister to your friends this way, and, and you are part of a community called by God to honor marriage. Hebrews chapter 13 verse 4 says, let marriage, let marriage be held in honor among all, among all. That's God's command to all of us in Grace Church. Honor marriage as God intends. And that's not always easy to do today. We live in a time and a society where marriage has been officially redefined. Marriage is no longer between just one man and one woman. And as serious as that is, many just find marriage irrelevant today as some unnecessary or old-fashioned institution. So for us to to honor marriage together as a church, for us to honor marriage among all as God commands, we must, we must think and we must believe rightly about this thing called marriage. So let me ask you a question. What do you believe about marriage? What do you believe about marriage? I don't mean can you give the textbook definition of marriage. I mean... More like, what's your working definition of marriage? What, what do you believe marriage is really all about? You know what I mean by working definition? A working definition, as I would define it, would be, what's, what's the thing supposed to do? What, what does it accomplish? What's its purpose? You know, the working definition for a hammer is something that can drive in a nail. The working definition for a screwdriver is something that can screw in a screw. A working definition for a chopstick. What would you say? In my house, a chopstick is a key to a door. Because a chopstick perfectly, perfectly unlocks the bathroom doors of my house. So when I am in the bathroom, and we have kind of an odd bathroom that is sort of a pass-through thing, and so when my kids say, I've got to get through the bathroom, I'm like, I'm in the bathroom! No, it's okay, Dad, I'll get a chopstick! No, don't get a chopstick! Because the working definition of a chopstick in my house is a key to unlock the door! What's your working definition of marriage? And what's it all about? What's it do? What's its purpose? Is it just an arrangement for your convenience? Is it a relationship designed to make your dreams come true? Is it a relationship merely in which to produce and raise children? Or is it just a a legal arrangement between two consenting adults, be they two men or two women or what have you? I hope you take away today from this morning in God's word, that your 
working definition of marriage needs to be God's working definition of marriage. I hope that's what happens for you and me. That, that your working definition, the definition that is functioning in your brain when you think of marriage, your working definition has to be the Bible's working definition. For we find God's working definition, if you will, in Genesis chapter 2. Follow along as I read from God's word beginning in verse 18. Here we are transported to the first wedding. Verse 18, then the Lord God said, it is not good that the man should be alone. I will make make him a helper fit for him. Now out of the ground the Lord God had formed every beast of the field and every bird of the heavens and brought them to the man to see what he would call them. And whatever the man called every living creature, that was its name. The man gave names to all livestock and to the birds of the heavens and every beast of the field. But for Adam there was not found a helper fit for him. So the Lord God caused a deep sleep to fall upon the man. And while he slept, took one of his ribs, closed up its place with flesh, and the rib that the Lord God had taken from the man, he made into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, This at last! is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. Therefore, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. And the man and his wife were both naked and were not ashamed. Let's pause one more time and let's ask for God's help, shall we? Father, we come to your word and there's so much here in this passage we won't be able to get to. We pray, Spirit of God, you would use your word nonetheless to form our thinking in particular about marriage. To shape us, each one of us, younger, older, single, married, that you'd shape us this morning to think as you would have us think. And so live more and more as you'd have us live. We ask for your help in Jesus' name. Amen. So here's the context. God created the first man, Adam, put him in this garden temple, this garden temple called Eden, to be a worker. We talked about how he's given a calling, a, a vocation to work and, and keep the garden. It's a wonderful picture. Then God says in verse 18 that we read, It is not good that the man should be alone. I've given him this calling, this vocation. Now, it's not good that the man should be alone. That is a helpfully humbling comment for every husband here, I do believe. It's not good for the man to be alone. You see, throughout Genesis chapter 1, you might recall, the constant refrain is, everything that God has made is is good. Recall that? God makes the light, the dry land, the seas, the plants, the trees, the sea creatures, the birds, the beasts of the earth, the livestock, and says, it's good. There is this steady drumbeat throughout Genesis 1 of good, 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 good. God steps back. Everything is very good. 
sees Adam all alone, maybe a confused look on his face, I don't know, and says, not good. Oh, my, my. Not good at all. So, I will make a helper, God says, fit for him. Now, that, that is not a statement of inferiority of women. It is not. In fact, God refers to himself with this word helper in other parts of Scripture. This is not a slam. It's not a statement of inferiority in the least. In fact, we saw in Genesis 1 that both the, the man and the woman are made as image bearers of God, both male and female, equally bearing God's image. So both are equal in dignity and value and worth before God. That's very important. Here, Eve is being called Adam's helper, literally, literally a help opposite him, or, or matching him, or corresponding to him, the, the puzzle piece that fits him. Eve is here made as Adam's complement. I like that word, complement. Matching puzzle piece. Sometimes married couples will come to me and they'll say, we are so different, as if that's the source of their problems. We are just so different. And I say, of course you're different. God made you different for a reason. He didn't clone one of you. You're meant to complement each other, to fit together just right. You're different on purpose. My wife, son, in the children's ministry, and she allowed me to say these things. She is a saver. She loves to save things. Um, her, wife, uh, her, her family, she and her family came from Korea when she was 10 with literally nothing, the clothing on their back. And so she, she knows the value of being a careful steward, which is a great thing. But I, on the other hand, I'm a purger. I get perverse joy out of throwing things away, even if we need them. I, just, I dream of having a dumpster in my, in my uh, driveway just to chuck stuff. I would love to live. Yeah, you, you're with me. Thank you, Janice. I would love to live in a house with no furniture, just a few beanbag chairs. <laughs> so it used to bother me that she would like to save stuff. It would grate on me a little bit, and I have, I confess to you. A number of years ago, I, I, I sinfully complained to her in the kitchen one time. I said, things just seem cluttered around here. And for a purger, clutter is just like the worst thing ever. Now, we, neither one of us really have changed in this area. <laughs> but I've come to appreciate how, by God's wisdom and God's kindness to me, we complement each other. That's what's in view here. Adam needs someone matching him, someone corresponding to him, a complement. That does not mean, if you are single, that does not mean that you are sitting there incomplete right now. Okay, Jesus was single. The Apostle Paul was sing single for as much as we know of him. They completely fulfilled their callings. If God calls you to be single, he makes you complete for that calling. He has more than enough grace to do that. But I think here, 
I think, reflecting the, the typical arrangement of things, Adam needs a compliment, someone corresponding to him. And so in an act for which every husband should give much thanks, God fashions Eve, escorts her down the aisle for the first wedding, and Adam breaks out into the first recorded human poem. Verse 23, this, at last, at last, is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. She shall be called woman because she was taken out of man. You have to realize he's been naming animals all day long, right? Giraffe, zebra, cow, parrot. Uh, God, I don't see anyone that's like matching me. And God says, that's the point. Now you're ready for her. I love Bruce Waltke's comment. Bruce Waltke comments on this scene saying, rather than squandering his most precious gift on one who is unappreciative, God waits until Adam is prepared to appreciate the gift of woman. Husbands, Here's a takeaway point for you and me. God does not want to squander his most precious gift. Appreciator. Adam is appreciative to say the least. And then Moses, the inspired narrator, comments on this scene. Verse 24. Therefore, you see verse 24, therefore, having witnessed or described the first wedding, therefore, let me explain this to you, let me interpret this for you, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. So God, God here invented marriage And in that verse, God really defines marriage. That is, I think, the closest thing we have to God's working definition for marriage. If you want a working definition for marriage, look no further than verse 24. So what I want to do with you today, the rest of our time, is do two things. I want to take time to unpack that verse. Think about that verse. Unpack this working definition. And then secondly, I want to think about how it works. Okay? I want to unpack the working definition and then think of a few ways in which that working definition does work for us. Tracking with me? Okay, here's verse 24. Verse 24 begins, Therefore a man shall leave, shall leave his father and his mother. Now that alone is a remarkable statement. The people who conceived you gave birth to you, fed you, changed your diapers, provided for your every need. They are no longer to be your closest human relationship. You leave your household and realize, realize these words were first written in a culture that prized strong family bonds. So this is a profound comment on the priority of marriage. If, if life were some kind of game of cards, and I'm not a, an expert card player of some kind, but if life were some kind of card game, 
marriage would be the ace. You know, marriage would be the trump card of your human relationships, of all your human relationships. Here's the one, if you are married, here's the one that must have priority for you. That means we let no, no hobby, no activity, no career pursuit even threaten this priority. And it means we must let no one compete with this priority. There must not be a competitor of some kind. Even, I would include, even our children. Parenting is a, an important, vital calling not minimizing parenting for a nanosecond. Please don't misunderstand. But too many couples can build their marriages exclusively around the children, and then when the children leave home, the marriage, the marriage is in jeopardy. We must prioritize this relationship the man leaves his father and mother, verse 24 goes on, and notice then is to hold fast, or older translations you might remember, we would say cleave. The man leaves and cleaves, hold fast, or cleaves to his wife. And this really is, it's the idea of a covenant, a, a committed relationship. A commentator named David Atkinson is helpful here. He writes the following, cleaving or holding fast in our translation today. Cleaving, notice, is the covenant faithfulness word. It points to the committed faithfulness. I wish I could underline that for you. Committed faithfulness that one promises to the other that whatever the future holds, whatever's coming down the pike, the couple faces it as a pair. That, that is marriage at its core. That's, that's the glue. Committed faithfulness. Whatever the future holds. It's a covenant. See, by contrast, our culture sees marriage more as a contract. A contract is a fine thing. A contract is where two parties agree to certain terms, and either party can Eliminate or cancel the contract if the other party is not deemed living up to the terms. So, you make a contract with your plumber. And if your plumber is not fulfilling the terms of the contract, you can cancel the contract. Likewise, if you do not pay your plumber, your plumber can cancel the contract with you. Marriage is not a contract like that. Marriage has a kind of sacredness or sanctity as a covenant. It, it reflects how God relates to his people through a covenant, this committed faithfulness. It has a, a sacredness to it that a contract could never have. I want to insert here that there are, there are biblical grounds for divorce. I'm not saying otherwise. Adultery and abandonment are the two grounds we are given in Scripture. And yes, unbiblical divorces happen as well. And if that's your situation, I'm not trying to condemn you in the least this morning. Please don't hear that. 
in those situations we we take responsibility for what we can take responsibility for. We own what we can own, and we go to the cross of Jesus Christ, whose blood and righteousness cleanses us from every sin, and every person here needs that. But to view marriage rightly, to think about marriage rightly, to have a right kind of working definition, we must see it as, as a covenant, committed faithfulness, whatever the future holds. This is why I love going to weddings. I love going to weddings and being reminded of this reality. I, I, enjoy, I enjoy also doing premarital counseling when a, when a couple is engaged and I always counsel them. I say, may I appeal to you not to get creative with your vows. Don't make up new stuff with your vows, right? You are making lifelong commitments. And then I tell them, you want, you want in your marriage ceremony for there to be a kind of joyful sobriety. You know, in the reception, yes. Party down, have a good time. In the ceremony, you want there to be a joyful sobriety. It is joyful, of course, but, but there should be a soberness in the air. You should sense in the, in the emotional barometer a holy sobriety because you are entering into lifelong commitments for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish Till death do us part. Till one of you takes the last gasp of air into your lungs. Until for one of you, your, your heart beats for the last time. That, that's the kind of commitment this is. A covenant. It speaks to, doesn't it? It speaks to the, the exclusivity of marriage. The exclusivity of it. That means you are committing to banish any thought of, I think I'd be better off with him. Or I think I might be better off with her. Isn't that the temptation of lust and the seed of adultery? You know, I'd be happier if I was with him or her friends. Banish that thought. It is a lie. Trust God that he has brought you together. Remember that you have vowed to love, honor, and cherish one person uniquely till death do you part. That's loaded into those words, hold fast. Then verse 24 ends. And they shall become one flesh. They shall become one flesh. Now we tend to think of this as some uh, sexual idea, and certainly that's included, but far more is implied here. Let me just call in a few scholars to help me out. Klaus Westerman, he writes and calls this idea of one flesh, he calls it a spiritual unity. A spiritual unity, the most complete personal community. That's a good definition. 
Grant Osborne, commentator, he calls one flesh, uh, comments on it, saying it refers to a complete oneness, a complete oneness of the married couple in every area of their lives. Isn't that a compelling definition? Lastly, Leon Morris describes being one flesh as a close and binding union. The closest of unions known on this earth. It's, it's one man and one woman being joined together before God in the closest and most committed human relationship possible. That's, that's God's working definition of marriage. Is that your working definition of marriage? I'm not trying to condemn or discourage, but just so we might make application and think about this personally. If you are married, if you are married here, and someone, someone popped in the DVD of your marriage recently, and they watched and observed your marriage recently, what would they say? How would they describe your marriage? Would they say you have primarily a, a business marriage? I mean, you, you get the stuff of life done. Now, you are president and vice president of family operations. And that's what your marriage is really all about. It's, it's efficient. Or would they say that you have a marriage that is built exclusively around parenting? Again, I'm not minimizing parenting in the least. But they would say raising your children is the main function, the primary function of your marriage. Or would they say you have more of a, more of a roommate marriage? You, you live in the same house. You, you share assets together amicably. You are compatible roommates. Now listen, each of those contains an element of what happens in a marriage. Each one does. But I'm saying to you that God created marriage to be much more than that. A spiritual unity, we heard. A complete oneness, we heard. A close and binding union as one flesh. That's the working definition. Now let's see how it works. Okay, let me, let me submit to you three ways... I'll be brief. Three ways that working definition works. Three ways, if you are thinking that way and believing that about marriage, that that working definition of one flesh will do some great work for you. Here's the first. Being one flesh defines your goal for your marriage or for marriage in general. Being one flesh defines your goal. See, marriage is one flesh means our primary goal is not, quote, getting my needs met as much as I desire that. <laughs> it is what Tim Keller calls the me marriage. Everything is about how things affect me, help me, or impact me. Me is the lens through which I view everything in this marriage. That's not the goal of being one flesh together. The primary goal is also not just an easy marriage. It might seem odd. Why not? Well, it becomes very easy just to coast in marriage. 
to say, I just want my life to be easy, and so I'm going to avoid challenges, I'm going to avoid conflict resolution, I'm going to avoid any kind of problem that would make my marriage stronger when I resolved it, I'm just going to coast, I'm just going to make it easy. And as men, this can be our tendency, right? The primary goal of a one flesh relationship is also not just staying together, and that that's a good thing to stay together. Okay, you're hearing that already. It's just not a high enough goal. The goal here is, is loftier. The primary goal is, of course, to glorify God, but how do we do that? As one flesh, we do so through a, a more and more intimate, more and more relationally close marriage being built over time. Not that we ever arrive at perfect marital nirvana in this life. I'm not saying that. But we're seeking to grow. We're, we're heading that direction, right, toward increasing relational intimacy and harmony in our union called one flesh. So if you're married, make this your goal. Make this your, um, your magnetic north. And if you have a compass that's working, my understanding is that it will point to magnetic north, which is basically north. And if you're getting off track, if you're wandering in the woods, you can pull out your compass and it can show you, okay, I'm pointing now to north, and you can make a course correction. Well, this goal can be like that for you. It reminds you of the right course, the direction that you want to head in. You take readings on this compass by asking things like, are we growing in our experience of oneness? Are we growing in our unity as a couple? Are we growing in intimacy and cultivating fellowship together? Married couples, would you, would you ask those questions? Talk about them this week. Are you growing in your experience of oneness? Are you growing in unity? Are you cultivating intimacy and fellowship. And if the compass shows you're off track a little bit, then by God's grace you can make a course correction and be heading again toward this grand goal. Let me add, let me add something here. I would add, pursue this goal with prayer. Pursue this goal with prayer. I've said this in the past, but I think the best thing I've done in recent years in my marriage with Sung is I, I put our marriage on my regular prayer list. Now, you could certainly ask, Tab, why wasn't it there before? I don't know. <laughs> Just sort of assume that, which is the problem. So I now put it right there on my regular prayer list to remind me such that most days, not every day, but most days, I'm reminded to pray for my marriage. And I pray. Here's what I pray. I pray, God, would you continue to renew our affections for each other? Would you continue to make sure we are growing in fellowship and closeness and protect our faithfulness to each other? You know what? God's been graciously answering that prayer. I think if Sung were here, you can ask her later. <laughs> I think she would say... We are ever growing closer and closer by God's grace. God is for you. He wants to help you. Secondly, 
Secondly, being one flesh orients your hearts. Here's some more work this working definition does for us. Being one flesh together, realizing that, thinking that way, it'll orient your heart to each other. See, remaining sin within always seeks to orient our hearts away from each other, doesn't it? But this working definition, when it's working, orients our hearts toward each other. We are reminded to pursue each other in mutual love and mutual care and mutual respect and mutual concern. I think Ephesians chapter 5 pictures this this mutuality, this two-way street. It does so especially for husbands, but ladies, you can make application here as well. The Apostle Paul in Ephesians chapter 5 is describing Christ's love for his bride, the church. And then he says this, in the same way, just like Christ died for his bride, in the same way, husbands should love their wives, notice, as their own bodies, their own physical body. He who loves his wife, loves himself. For no one ever hated his own flesh, but nourishes, feeds, and cherishes it, just as Christ does the church. I love how the apostle breaks it down for the guys. Fellas, it's like your physical body. (laughs) And guys, how many meals have you skipped recently? For me, I skipped zero meals this week. I never skip a meal unless somehow intentionally. I love to eat. There's a, the apostle speaking down to my level. Tab, you have a physical body that you feed. Tab, you take care of your physical body every day. You love your physical body. You prioritize your physical body. Now, song is joined with you like your one body together. Are you tracking with me, Tab? So, Tab, love her like you love yourself. I'm like, okay, Lord, I got it. I'm starting to track. You see the mutuality here? So love her like you love your own body. So care for her and cherish her and protect her and nourish her because when you love your wife, you're loving yourself, man. Don't be stupid. Because you're one flesh together. Because you're joined in this union together. That's how it orients us to each other. Think about, think about what happens in a conflict. Not just, you know, your run-of-the-mill disagreement, but you're really, you're really butting heads in a conflict. In conflict, there is, there is a fixed pie that I call, I'm right. And in conflict, we fight for the biggest slice of that pie we can get to show how right we are, don't we? I'm not the only one, am I? So in a conflict, you're not thinking, he who loves his wife loves himself. He who loves his wife loves himself. You're thinking, how can I get this whole pie and marshal so much evidence and prove to her that I'm right? And she's wrong. Or vice versa. When being one flesh means, supply this passage, tab, What hurts her, hurts you. And what helps her, helps you. That's Ephesians 5. Being one flesh means when one suffers, the other suffers. And when one prospers, 
what happens? The other's prospering. You're joined together. Being one flesh is like your allies together. You're joined in the same cause. Think about, think about allies in warfare. They don't intentionally attack each other. I've been reading about World War II. And as the Germans are bombing London, we didn't go and bomb London ourselves. We didn't, let me bomb London. Let's add some more bombs on London. Why? There are allies in this cause. We're joined together in this cause. You don't bomb your allies. So in marriage, why do we keep thinking it's okay to bomb each other when we're allies in the closest way possible? Allies in marriage, by God's grace, will seek to minister to each other, won't we? We'll seek to minister to each other. We don't lob grenades, we bring band-aids. It might mean correction, we correct each other, of course. But our motive is to help, to heal, not hurt, not wound further. Yes, you will still have conflict, okay? I'm not saying otherwise, all right? Yes, you will. Sin is active in every marriage here, every heart here. Yes, you will still have conflict. I'm saying, though, this truth can help you resolve conflict more quickly and restore your affections more thoroughly. That's growth. It's when you're going head-to-head in that conflict, you're butting heads, and you, you stop, and you say, Honey, wait a minute. Let's turn side by side and face this together. Let's link arm in arm and work this through together and grow from it. Being one flesh orients our hearts to each other. And one more, thirdly, being one flesh, it points to your hope. It points to your hope in marriage and it points to the hope of every single person sitting in this room. Genesis 2.24 is quoted three times in the New Testament, twice when Jesus is defending his high view of marriage. The third reference is Ephesians chapter 5, as I mentioned a minute ago. That passage ends like this. The Apostle Paul quoting Genesis 2.24, Therefore, a man shall leave his father and mother and hold fast to his wife, and the two shall become one flesh. So the Apostle Paul says, that's a good working definition, Tab. I think I'll use it as well. But then he adds this. This mystery is profound. And I am saying that it refers to Christ and the church. Now, now in saying this mystery, he's not saying... You know, here's an unsolved mystery. Yeah, husband, you won't figure your wife out, something like that. It's not Carl Agatha Christie. It's not Carl Sherlock Holmes. This is something hidden has now been revealed. Something was behind the curtain, and now the curtain has been lifted. What's been revealed? This, that marriage is intended by God to be a picture of Christ. 
and his bride, the church. Now friends, that's not some helpful illustration about marriage. That's the purpose of your marriage. To point to Christ and the church. That means marriage as one flesh is meant to reflect the relationship between King Jesus and those joined with him, in union with him, his people, his bride, his beloved, all who believe, all who have turned to him and trusted to him, trusted in him. That means there's a real sense, isn't there? There's a real sense that every marriage is meant to be a kind of pointer to that ultimate marriage and a pointer to the good news of Jesus Christ. And friends, that good news is the hope for every person here and every marriage here. I realize we're in Genesis 2, and you might be thinking, Tab, something happens in Genesis 3. I I get it. We're We're living in a Genesis 3 world where we have plunged into sin. And that affects every marriage. I get that. Maybe as a result, you are discouraged in your marriage right now. And and we prayed for you this morning. And I hope that you realize your hope is not in yourself right now. Your hope is in the one who lived, died, and rose for you. Your hope is in the one who rose triumphant, having paid for all the sins of all who believe. Your hope is in the one who is interceding as as your high priest right now. Your hope is in the one who says, draw near my throne of grace and receive mercy and find grace to help in time of need. And listen, there is not a marriage here that is too far from the grace of God. Not a one. No marriage beyond the reach of that grace. Look, when selfishness or arrogance or laziness disrupts or affects your marriage, which it will, go to the cross and resurrection of Jesus Christ. In fact, for all of us, for all here who have believed, realize... Realize you are part of that bride Jesus loves. We tend sometimes to think of Ephesians 5 just about mainly calling husbands to love their wives, which it does. But don't forget, if you've believed, you're part of that bride he loves right now. If you've believed, you're part of that bride he died for. If you have believed, you're part of the bride where it says he's going to present you spotless, in splendor, without any wrinkle or blemish before him. You see, the Bible begins with a marriage in Genesis 2, and the Bible really ends with a marriage. In Revelation 19, the marriage supper of the Lamb, where that spotless bride is presented to her groom. And so, I want to urge you to to read your Bible backwards. To read it with that hope in mind. Read it with the end in view. We know how the story ends. We know where we're heading. And you can derive hope for yourself right now. 
Your story, single or married, is set in that grand story between two weddings. A story of what was lost being regained. A story of what is damaged being fixed by God's grace. A story of what what has fallen being, being restored by the one who has come to live and die and rise and and bring a people to himself. So we're going to end by celebrating his supper, the Lord's Supper, as a pointer forward 